0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast, presented by University of California Television. Since anthropogeny is not a normally common word, although many people are getting to know it, I hope, uh, it is the investigation of the origin of humans. And we do that writ large, and I think you'll see today that... Uh, what you're going to ta- we're talking about today is not the actual depth of origin of modern humans but it does have implications for how that came about our complete card mission statement which we've worked on is to use all rational and ethical approaches to all verifiable facts uh, from all relevant disciplines, and you can tell as just from us there are a lot of relevant disciplines, to explore and explain the origins of the human phenomena. We try to minimize complex organizational structures, And hierarchies, we try as best we can, and to avoid unnecessary paperwork and bureaucracy. So we try to keep it simple. We try to keep it simple. I do want to thank some people because without them, uh, we wouldn't have CARTA and we wouldn't have um, these... Symposia that we've been able to carry on. Our main supporter is the Harold and Lila Mathers Foundation, and I would especially like to thank Dr. Mr. Jim Handelman, our exe- the executive director, and his wife Susan. I'd also like to thank Annette Merrill Smith, who could not be with us today. Now, I will turn this over to the co-chair of today's symposium, Dr. Evan Eichler, from the University of Washington.
1: So it's a pleasure to welcome all of you here today. Want a special thanks to the speakers that have come um, from far and wide to make this symposium an event. We came up with this idea about uh, about 9 months ago and I can tell you that it came from really a mixture of of new data that was emerging. The enthusiasm from complete sequencing of genomes and the fact that it's been almost ten years since we've had a human genome reference, the ability to start to kind of peer into the diversity that exists in different continental groups and to understand that really from a functional perspective is why we're all gathered here today. So this symposium is organized in two parts. The first half will be really kind of exploring uh, the nature of genetic diversity in different continental groups we're going to hear some excellent lectures uh, focusing on Africa, South America, and Europe and what we've learned about human genetic diversity just in terms of neutral genetic diversity and its implications. We're also going to hear from Pascal Gagnon regarding kind of where we fit with respect to other ape species or other species related to humans. And I think he'll leave you with the impression that we're quite shallow genetically as a species. He'll also give us a little bit of a primer in terms of uh, so everybody's on the same page in terms of what we mean when we when we talk about genetic variation. The second half of the symposium will focus more on really some of the functional implications in terms of uh, brain development, in terms of immune response, and we'll end with some uh, discussion regarding the the impact this might have in terms of society. Our next speaker is Carlos Bustamante. He's now at Stanford. He started his lab there in the beginning of this year. Uh, He graduated in 2001 with a Ph.D. from Harvard in biology, and from 2002 to 2008, he really moved up the ranks very quickly, rising to full professor status in a very short order, and large part due to his accomplishments that he's had, particularly in the area of... um, of genetic diversity. He has a wide range of interests that go from all the way from dogs to humans. and I think we're going to hear mainly about his work with European diversity, but I think he'll dabble in other areas as well.
2: I'd like to begin by uh, uh, hearkening back to the uh, what Evan was saying about the technological developments that uh, have arisen since the International Haplotype Map Project and other large sequencing endeavors. So as many of you know, these technological developments have now led to a hundred... Uh, fold, if not more, sort of cost in the, in, the reduc- in the reduction in the cost of genotyping. So I used to have a slide on here as to how much it would cost to genotype a million variants in the human genome, but it's now gotten to the point that you just need to update it every week because it just becomes cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And uh, the DNA sequencing has gotten to the same point with complete human se- uh, genomes. So if we think about the collection of the first complete human genome sequence, it took about um, 20 years and on the order of a uh, billion dollars, uh, the Second one took uh, several hundred million dollars, uh, and then from then on, it's just dropped precipitously. We're probably on the range of about five to ten thousand dollars to sequence a, a human genome today. Probably at the end of the year, that'll be about an order of magnitude less. So we're really sort of entering this realm in which uh, sort of collecting uh, full genome sequence data is, is really no longer sort of the, the barrier to uh, to thinking about uh, problems, but rather really sort of thinking about the the the, the biological and and, uh, medical problem that we're interested in. And and as Evan was saying, sort of in my lab alone, we've had the tremendous pleasure to work on a wide range of organisms ranging from humans to dog to rice to to cattle. And what has made this sort of fun and exciting is that oftentimes we're interested in the same set of questions. So we'd like to quantify genetic differences within and among populations, a very classic problem in population genetics. We'd like to identify the genes underlying traits of interest. So we heard a beautiful uh, study uh, today from Sarah about mapping uh, mutations involved in lactase persistence. In the same way, we'd like to uh, use uh, genome-wide studies to understand genes contributing to disease susceptibility in humans or morphology in dogs or milk yield in, in cattle. Likewise, we'd like to reconstruct the demographic history of different populations and identify targets of natural selection again uh, akin to what Sarah talked about today but really sort of on a a whole genome wide scale looking at patterns of variation for many different populations and and in particular I'd like to focus today on the problem of of personal genomic sequence and trying to understand uh, what is that we can glean from uh, genotype data and and, and eventually sequence data um, from uh, about uh, personal ancestry and uh, differences within and among populations and as a way of motivating this I, I've put a, a figure on here from one of the largest studies to date uh, in medical genomics, namely the Wellcome Trust Case Control study, uh, which aimed to identify genetic variants associated with seven different diseases simultaneously. So this is really sort of a paragon of, of what is being done today in medical genetics. And this is a study led by uh, Peter Donnelly and others. And, and they, as I said, they looked at bipolar disorder, coronary art disease, a series of different uh, complex d- diseases. These are so-called Manhattan plots. Each of these is a chromosome, and the height of these bars um, is giving you a a sense of the the statistical evidence for associations among genetic variants in a region and a disease. So, for example, there's a hit on chromosome 9 for coronary artery disease. There's a a bunch of stuff for Crohn's disease all over the genome. They really didn't find anything for hypertension and so on. One of the main... limitations to this sort of research at the moment is that these studies are being done in a small corner of human genomic diversity. In particular, most of the individuals that are being enrolled in these sorts of studies are individuals of northern European descent. So, uh, and there's now uh, a move to study a host of different disorders, glaucoma, ischemic, stroke, and so on. And a huge question is, what is the relevance of the variants that are being found by these studies to other populations. And we heard, uh, again, another wonderful example from Sarah, where the mutation that causes lactase persistence in Africans is quite different than the mutation that um, it's in the same gene, but it's a different variant than, than you find in European. So it's a question of how common is this uh, picture, and, and how do we really enable a medical genomics on a global scale? And so uh, to answer these questions, we really need to take a a look at uh, uh, classical questions in human population genetics. That is, to what degree are modern human populations accessible for medical genetic studies substructured? That is, if I'm running a, a hospital in Kinshasa or in Caracas or in Karachi, how different are the people that are coming into my clinic and how can I use that information to design a carefully controlled genetic studies? Second, what are accurate models for describing human genomic diversity? And what is it that we're learning from the latest uh, sort of technologies, both genotyping and sequencing? How can we make use of these data to reconstruct personal genetic history? That is, are are we able to learn about the the history of our genomes, about those different segments that Pascal was telling us about today from looking at these sorts of, of, of data? Um, how do we uh, uh, think about reconstructing ancestry, and will this be necessary and sufficient to allow for mapping of, of disease mutations across divergent populations? How do we think about, again, this question of enabling a medical genomics on a large scale? And um, how do we uh, undertake genome-wide association mapping and admixed populations with complex structure? And we'll talk about that in a moment. So the study I'd like to tell you about today is a, a sort of long-standing collaboration between my lab and uh, GlaxoSmithKline. I, I don't have any stock in Glaxo. Don't pay me. It just happened to be a, a collaboration that we had. And... Um, The the study aimed to establish a resource for studying human population genetics, recent demography, and and admixture. We spent several years dealing with this bit, which is trying to get all the the, the data uh, together. I won't bore you with the details. I'll just leave you with this number, which is that when we took two individuals and we genotyped them 99.5% of the time, we had the exact same uh, genotype uh, for, for for the position. When we started, it was not nearly as good. Uh, and we'll leave it at that. So uh, the study enrolled about 5,000 individuals, and this was really uh, one of the largest studies uh, on this scale that looked at global genomic diversity. And in particular, we had 3,200 Europeans from most countries in Europe with hundreds of individuals per country, or at least dozens of individuals per country. Uh, We genotyped 500 African-Americans across 500,000 markers, one of the the largest studies to to enroll African-Americans, and we'll talk about patterns of of genomic diversity in African-Americans. With Sarah, we looked at 200, uh, West Africans that uh, I'll also discuss, Indian Asians, which uh, until this point had, had never been looked at at that scale, as well as East Asians and, and Mexicans. And I apologize there was a, a problem with transferring the file, but hopefully this will go through. And, and as I said, Matt Nelson led this effort at GSK and our collaborator John Navoer at UCLA. So one of the big questions in trying to think about these data is that the SNPs that you're looking at, that is those variable nucleotides, aren't random, right? They are sort of drawn from a bizarre kind of constellation of the possible SNPs one could have looked at, and and it turns out they tend to favor common variants. And and the other issue is that there's a huge amount of data. So if you imagine an Excel spreadsheet, you'd have about 500,000 columns and something like 5,000 rows. There's a huge amount of data, and you can imagine putting a clever or undergraduate to look at each of the columns, but they'd soon sort of get bored and, and, and go on to a different lab. So we really need to think about ways of, of grappling with the sort of just magnitude of data. And um, what I'd like to tell you about is, is an approach that, that we've found particularly useful, something called principal components analysis. And um, I think the easiest way to thinking about principal component analysis is a way of visualizing half a million dimensions at the same time. Um, so if you imagine just two dimensions, you could imagine that you might have data that's sort of correlated along this x-y axis. What principal component would do is simply treat this as the, uh, the new axis, so that would be here, this would be the diagonal, and then tell you there's not much going on in, in the off-diagonal. The nice thing about PCA is that if you have clusters in this large 500,000-dimensional space, it will retain that structure and really sort of make, make that clear. Okay, so now on to looking at 500,000 dimensions of human genetic diversity simultaneously. And, and what, what you, when you do this, you see that uh, the patterns that emerge actually are quite, quite interpretable. So each dot here is an individual, and I've colored them um, uh, uh, according to self-reported ancestry. And um, what you find here, we're looking at those first two dimensions, the first two most important dimensions of that, 500,000 dimensional space, and you see that it corresponds extraordinarily closely to uh, the uh, Africa out of Africa axis. That is, here are the individuals uh, from Nigeria, the, the Yoruba, West Africans. Here are individuals from um, uh, Europe and, and, and East Asia along principal component one. Here are individuals of African American um, ancestry and you see that they uh, are on a continuum along this axis and we'll return to this point. This reflects, as, as Sarah mentioned, the admixed um, history of these populations. Principal component two separates the East Asians from the Europeans and you have the South Asians, so the individuals from India and Pakistan in between. On the other side of the globe, you have individuals with ancestry from Mexico and presumably what you're picking up on is a a signal of admixture that comes from Native American and European ancestry. The third principal component separates the South Asians from the East Asians. And the fourth is one we were particularly interested in, one that is only impacting um, the the Mexican sample and is really essentially separating individuals of Native American ancestry from those of East Asia, even though we didn't have Native Americans in the sample. um, What you're really looking at here is a a signature of of Mexican admixture and and, and, and the admixed ancestry of, of these populations. So you really begin to see that these genetic data have a fair amount of information regarding ancestry and if we intersect this with one of the largest studies to date to look at global patterns of Of diversity, a study by Stanford on a panel called the Human Genome Diversity Panel, you begin to see this sort of beautiful picture, sort of mosaic of how different populations are related each to the other, and how each human population is essentially one end on a continuum of lots of different human populations. And in fact, this notion that you might get from just looking at three or four geographically distinct populations of little clusters is really just an artifact of your sampling. And in fact, we have this this sort of bleeding of one population into the other. Here's for example, the, the Mexican admixture signal where you have Native Americans, here are Europeans, and this sort of the continuum of individuals with admixed ancestry. So we really are doing ourselves a disservice by restricting medical genomics to this sort of small corner of genetic diversity space. So you might say, well, Carlos, we need to start somewhere. Europeans, they seem to be a sort of monolithic group. Perhaps that's a good place to start. And so let's just focus in on this aspect of the map and, and PCA that up and what you find is that, uh, oh, this is unfortunate that this transferred poorly, but what you see here is that you get a, uh, a map of Europe Uh, from PCA that reflects the geographic map of Europe. So here are the Spanish and the Portuguese on the Iberian Peninsula. Here are the Italians. These individuals actually are from Sicily. Here's the UK, the US and the UK and their special relationship. Here's the Greeks and the Turks near each other, which is good for us, not necessarily good for the Greeks and the Turks. So you begin to see this sort of, really sort of reconstructing of, of, of physical distance from genetic distance. And you might say, well, Carlos all right fine let 's just focus in on, on Switzerland. Uh, I know that 's where Pascal is from. He might be interested in this so if we if we do that, you see that even within Switzerland you have um, all kinds of population substructure so the French speaking Swiss cluster with the French, the German speaking Swiss with the Germans, and the Italian speaking Swiss with the Italians. So there is a huge amount of, of genetic diversity within. Uh, uh, the human species, and this uh, genetic diversity is really reflecting uh, patterns of migrations and patterns of non-random mating, uh, and these technologies are giving us deep insights into this, and this is something that we really need to first um, understand, secondly, uh, sort of grapple with, and and third, really kind of interpret well for the reason that this is just going to become ever more precise. So as I said, we're focusing on patterns from common genetic variants. Now that we're beginning to sequence, you're going to begin to look at rare genetic variants, and those rare genetic variants are likely to be even more diagnostic of ancestry. So you might, for example, only find a variant in a small valley, one of the small valleys in Switzerland, and so if you carry that variant for a certain segment of your genome, you are almost surely have descended from that sort of small valley. In this way, we may... Uh, be able to sort of patchwork and understand from the genetics, sort of personal genetic ancestry. So I've always loved this painting from Norman Rockwell where little this this boy know the sort of richness of of his ancestry. He has um, ancestry from Native Americans, uh, perhaps a pair of brothers who fought in the Civil War and then trace their ancestry back to Barbary pirates that landed off the coast of Florida. So can we get this sort of information? How well can can we reconstruct these kinds of, of patterns? And our first stab at this was in the November et al. paper that was published in in Nature, which took the PCA data and used a very sort of simple model to try to predict longitude and latitude from the first two principal components. And what you see is that you do sort of surprisingly well. So here are the individuals that you predict to be from Spain. Here are the individuals from Italy, from Portugal, and, and where they actually uh, uh, arise from, and, and, and uh, the accuracy is something like 50% of individuals are predicted from within 400 kilometers of where they were born, and these are individuals that have four grandparents from a given country, so there's a tremendous amount of precision, and as I said, as we start sequencing, we're only going to improve on this kind of, uh, of, of uh, ability to predict ancestry from, uh, from genetic data. I'd like now to uh, shift focus and, and talk a little bit about uh, patterns of genetic variation in African Americans and West Africans. This is, as I said, a collaboration with Sarah Tishkoff and a paper we published earlier this year in PNAS. And the idea was essentially to think about each of these individuals and uh, try to estimate genome wide the ancestry components that came from each of the. Uh, uh, different potential source populations. Uh, and as you know, there's a tremendous interest for in, within the African-American community for solving this kind of problem. Um, uh, due to the barbarisms of the transatlantic slave trade, they've lost a huge amount of their history, and they'd love to understand, can you take segments of my genome and assign them to a particular population in Africa, a particular population in Europe, and so on. And this is the work of Kasha Brick, a just outstanding graduate student in my lab, and what Kashaw uh, sort of hit upon is the idea that perhaps the distances in PCA them, space themselves may be good proxies for ancestry. So you might imagine genome-wide, you would estimate at this point the ancestry is just a linear distance, uh, of the relative distance of the Europe, from the European centroid relative to the, uh, to the West African centroid. And it turns out that that does extraordinarily well and is very well correlated with this measure that uh, uh, Sarah talked about, the, the structure program. Uh, but what's neat about cautious approach is that you can actually run it genome-wide. So, for example, in blue here is the average of PC1 score for all Africans in the data set. In red is the average of PC1 score for all Europeans in the data set. And in, in black here is a single African-American individual. And you see that they almost look like signals coming from a channel... Uh, and this individual sort of right in between the blue channel and the red channel. So you might, as- you might sort of deduce from this that they have one chromosome of recent African origin and one chromosome of recent European origin. This is all along chromosome 1. Here is chromo- another individual along chromosome 1. And you see for the first half, they trace the same as, as this first individual. But now there sort of seems to be a switch. And they now look to be tracing the two. African uh, chromosome segments. So you would deduce here that there has um, now a, been an ancestry switch in this individual. In this way, you can um, overlay a mathematical model called the hidden Markov model. And here's what the raw data looks like, the sort of jagged uh, jumpiness. And then you um, put that it's through the model, and the model makes predictions. Here are two chromosomes of African origin. Here's a region of... of European African origin and you get these sort of beautiful oscillations in the data which reflect the personal genetic ancestry of this individual and in fact the length of those segments are telling you about the particular admixture history of that individual. Uh, and here are sort of four chromosomes, four, four genome wide reconstructions of ancestry from four different African Americans in the data set. Um, so, here, for example, is a representative African American. Blue is a region of African ancestry. Green is a region of joint European African ancestry. And red is a region of, of European ancestry. Here's an individual that seems to have had a, a, a more recent admixture history because they, have, they seem to have longer segments of African or European ancestry. Here's an individual that only seems to have European and African ancestry or European ancestry, which suggests that they have one parent of European origin. And here's an individual who self-identified as African American, but actually seems to be largely of European ancestry. So these are uh, sort of representative of, of the sorts of data that, that we we have obtained, and we're now in the process of figuring out how well you can assign these segments to different uh, populations. And, and one of the things that that you find is that, in fact, it, it turns out to be quite difficult. And uh, even after you've looked at four or five hundred thousand markers, particularly within uh, West Africa. So so, uh, and and that could be for to potential reasons. One, SNP discovery in West African populations has, has not been uh, uh, properly done, so we haven't sequenced enough West African populations to identify um, markers that can delineate ancestry. Or two, there was a sort of complex admixture at the, uh, at, and migrations at the time of the founding of African American populations. So what you really have are the coming together of several populations right at the, at the time of the transatlantic slave trade. Okay, uh, I'd like to just finish by telling you a little bit of a story from uh, Latin America. I happen to be from Venezuela, so we've been uh, collaborating now with folks to look at patterns of genomic diversity in the Americas. And uh, what's uh, particularly um, interesting here, so we've got samples from Puerto Rico, from the Dominican Republic, as you can see here, it shares uh, half of Hispaniola with Haiti, from Colombia, Ecuador, and and Mexico. And when you look at patterns of Hispanic-Latino diversity, you see that they're sort of all over the place. So um, just to orient ourselves on the map here, here's the cluster of European ancestry, here's a cluster of of West Africans, here's the cluster of Native Americans, and here each of these represents samples from a different country. So individuals from Mexico are primarily on a European-Native American axis of ancestry, uh, individuals from Colombia seem to sort of be in, in this space. They have sort of three-way admixture. From Puerto Rico, a slightly more three-way admixture with less Native American ancestry. And here individuals from the Dominican Republic, which you see um, essentially look very similar to African Americans um, in that they are on a European-West African axis of diversity, um, except it's closer maybe to a 50-50 um, Ancestry as opposed to to 2080. And this is particularly interesting in the case of the Dominican Republic for the reason that um, they have uh, um, uh, historically had a national um, uh, view of themselves as as derived from Taino Indians, which, um, uh, and and in fact, there's a fair amount of discrimination in the Dominican Republic against Haitians. But in fact, they they really have an African ancestry. And patterns are different between the European, the autosome, and, and and next chromosome, and we can talk about that as, as folks are interested. With that i 'd like to just to summarize and say that new technologies provide fine scale genome-wide view of population structure and admixture. it 's important to realize that these results reinforce the prevailing view since the '70s that human population structure is largely spatial and clinal. There is sort of um, no single uh, sort of monolithic um, clustering by, by race or any kind of um, notion such as that. In fact, it 's all sort of spatial and clinal. We need to embrace admixture. it 's a challenge for genome-wide association mapping. And this sort of personal ancestry reconstruction is quite feasible on a genome-wide scale. And Thank you very much.
3: My name is Ajit Barki, and as the co-director of UCSD Salk Carter, it's my great pleasure to make a few closing remarks to this wonderful symposium. I would obviously like to thank the chairs and all the speakers from a, for a truly intriguing and thought-provoking series of presentations. And, of course, special thanks to our major sponsors, Harold and Lila Mathers Charitable Foundation and Jim Handelman, the Executive Director, and Annette Merle-Smith. This afternoon, we have been treated to a fascinating feast of current information on the origin of the human species and our remarkable biodiversity. So it's said that truth is stranger than fiction. Who would have thought that all of us in this room... And in fact, all of us on this planet came from less than five or 10,000 individuals less than 100,000 years ago. So even while we celebrate the rich diversity of humans, I think we should, with Swante Pabo realize that from the genomic perspective, we are all Africans, either living in Africa or in quite recent exile from Africa. <laughs> So in this regard, I cannot help but close with mention something that I came across last week, and that was a reminder about the upcoming U.S census. <laughs> <laughs> Question number nine on the census form asked me to classify myself into this bewildering set of races. And uh, although I'm technically an Asian Indian, as you just heard from uh, Mike um, That's really not a very good category. In fact, the part of India that I'm from has not even been tested. So um, my own ancestry probably involves ancient Dravidians, Indo-European invaders, immigrants from Syria, Chinese sailors, Arab traders, and who knows who else. So I feel that I must instead check the box uh, other. But then I have to make two choices. My first choice is my true ethnic identity, which is culturally westernized, anglicized, naturalized U.S. immigrant, Syrian Christian, Malayali from Kerala and the south coast of West India. So I thought about this, and I think what I'm going to do instead, and I would encourage you to tell everyone to do this, let's, let's make, a, make a change here and just say,
0: human. Human. <laughs>